This is White Sox Weekly, your all-access pass to everything White Sox. Swing and a drive! Deep left! Gone! That was as hard as a baseball can be hit. Swing and a base hit to left, and the White Sox win it! Now here's your host, Connor McKnight. Good afternoon and welcome in to White Sox Weekly. It is December 23rd, 2023. Coming up on 2024. Sooner than you might think, happy holiday season to all of those who have uh, something going on here over the next couple of days, whether it be Hanukkah or Christmas or the New Year coming up, anything you celebrate, hopefully or, or thankfully you're sitting here with us talking a little White Sox baseball during your holiday season. You can give the gift of White Sox baseball with a holiday flex pack. Purchase six vouchers starting at 49 bucks, or upgrade to 10 vouchers starting at only $70. This upgrade offer is $100 off the regular price and only available through the holidays. Learn more at WhiteSox.com slash holiday packs. We had a, a lot to get to uh, considering it's December 23rd and things look like they're quieting down a bit for the holiday break. Yeah, typically speaking, you get a flurry of moves and there have been moves. I mean, listen, there, there's a lot of headlines going around and we're going to talk about the Dodgers of all of it here in just a little bit. Uh, Yamamoto, Yoshinobu Yamamoto signing a giant contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers becoming the latest Um, I guess you can't call him a superstar because he hasn't played stateside yet, but he's darn close to it. And I would imagine as soon as he makes his first start, he's going to be encroaching on that territory. Uh, We'll talk about what that contract means for the White Sox and exactly how, when, why, maybe, whether. Dylan Cease is one of the next pieces to be moved this offseason. Feels like that's been a main topic of our conversation here on White Sox Weekly for a couple of weeks. And I would guess, this is just me guessing, I would guess that if nothing's done you know, today, then I, w- I would think you know, over the holiday break here, people actually take a break. And GMs put down the phone a little bit, recharge the batteries some, and then coalesce after the new year and perhaps spring into action then. But that's not the only topic of conversation on the show today. Uh, there are rules changes coming for 2024. I don't know what you're thinking. Didn't we just have a bunch of rules changes in 2023? Yeah, we did. And largely, people liked every single one of them, even if they didn't all, myself included, dig the extra runner on second base in extra innings. That's here to stay. Uh, For the most part, though, these rules changes were were well-received by fans, by broadcasters, by writers, by players, and by uh, by front offices, I think. So largely, uh, thumbs up all around and some tweaks, really. Not so much new rules, but, but mostly tweaks are coming to the new rules we put in in 2023. Actually, our friend of the show, Jesse Rogers, had the write-up just a couple of days ago on ESPN.com, and we'll walk through. I'll walk through some of those rules changes for you here in just a little bit. This is kind of the beginning of one of my favorite times of year. I mean, I am, you know, partial to the Christmas season and whatnot. We get the garland and the lights up and everything like that. Watched a good Christmas movie last night. But also, this is kind of the beginning of the projection release season. Pakoda, 
Baseball Prospectus's player projection system has been released, and granted there are some tweaks that could come to whether it's Picota or Zips by Dan Zimborski or uh, pioneered by Dan Zimborski, now run by Fangraphs. Um, there are going to be some tweaks, especially when it comes to you know what team players are on who haven't signed yet and overall projections for you know groups of 26, rosters of 26. But the uh, the Pakota projections are out for individual players, and I thought we might scroll through some spreadsheets and tell you what that particular projection system thinks of a couple of notable White Sox. Uh, one of them, I think, is, is really going to surprise you. It surprised me a little bit. We talked with Eric Fetty, who's the uh, new starting pitcher signed by the White Sox out of the KBO. When did we talk with him? Two weeks ago, I think? Yeah, two weeks ago we had Eric Fetty on the show. Great interview. Good to talk with him. Uh, Pakoda loves him. I'll, I'll just right off the top here. I'll tease it for later on in the show. Pakoda loves Eric Fetty and hopes for a lot, or projects, I should say, for a lot from the White Sox' new starting pitcher, which would be wonderful to see. Real shrewd signing, a, a guy that a lot of teams were competing over, uh, and the White Sox landed him for a member of their starting rotation. So we'll get into what those projections look like as well. The biggest story in baseball concerns the Dodgers and then the rest of us, right? I mean, I, I think that's where I kind of want to start this show because in an offseason where the biggest free agent in baseball history, I mean, certainly the, the most money ever paid to a free agent in baseball history, made the most headlines and signed with the Los Angeles Dodgers, L.A. decided they're not done yet. And that leaves, in my opinion and from the view of a lot of others, that leaves a lot of fan bases who aren't Dodgers fans looking around and kind of wondering at the future of free agency, kind of the future of the game and what's going to happen here in the next couple of years. Of course, you know, this this show is yours as much as it is anything else. But the question to you, 312-332-3776, that's the phone number here on White Sox Weekly. The question to you is a more general baseball question, and that's what do you think of super teams? We're here again, right? We're we're at a spot in another off season where the haves, the Giants in this particular instance, have continued to have right. They're just shoveling good players with a whole bunch of money in toward the roster in an attempt to, from a lot of people's perspective, buy a World Series title. But I would tell you this: I think that. Over the last, well, since the playoffs have been expanded for sure, and even before it got widened out to the field that we have now, I think the playoffs in Major League Baseball have been an equalizer for teams that may not match up with the kind of dollars spent in the free agent market or you know, whether if you're signing your own players or something like that, just total payrolls. I would argue that, that the playoff bracket itself – is the thing that keeps this game as equal as maybe any. You you read people like uh, Ben Lindbergh of, of The Ringer, or you read writers in The Athletic like Ken Rosenthal, you know, really good thinkers, guys who are either um, connected to the you know to the to the talkers in the baseball world, GMs and like that with, with Ken Rosenthal, or or kind of the thinkers of it like Lindbergh, and you kind of get the same estimation that you can get yourself to the playoffs by spending a whole lot of money. But this playoff system, right, the, the random variance that is involved in, in the playoffs, now that we've got so many teams in it, threatens a super Dodgers team in the same way as it would have 
you know, an early 90s, or I should say a late 90s Yankees team, had they had to go through the same kind of gauntlet. There's a reason we've had so many different World Series winners here over the last 10, 15, even 20 years. There's a reason we've not had a repeat World Series winner since those Yankees teams. And I think there's a reason, too, why you're seeing players like Otani, not that there are many players like Otani, but that you're seeing a lot of players look for deals that are shaped differently, or maybe the better way to put it is shaped a little bit more like Otani's uh, than we have ever before. That's not to say, though, that just because you spend a whole bunch of money, you're going to have a great 2024, right? Look at the San Diego Padres. Look at the New York Mets of last season. The baseball season, all 162, is still a grind no matter how many ducats you've put down on a payroll, right? And if you don't have the depth, if things are just real unlucky for you, if another team catches fire, all of these things um, exist in, in a baseball season because, in part, it's as long as it is. And I think that brings some of the parity that, that others have kind of looked at and, and, and wanted um, in the shade of this Yoshinobu Yamamoto deal, now to go along with Shohei Otani on the Dodgers. I, I think that gives us a little bit more parity than you might think otherwise. Now, here's how, how I see, or at least most see, kind of the landscape here shaping out. Now that, you know, kind of overnight the other night, we saw Yoshinobu Yamamoto, uh, the 25-year-old Japanese right-hander, signed with the Dodgers. It is the It is the biggest pitching contract in baseball history and like many contracts that get really up there in dollars uh, you start to deal with some you know some individual idiosyncrasies uh, in in any, any particular deal and we'll still see some reporting I think on exactly how this thing is shaped out but it's 12 years 325 million dollars that surpasses the Garrett Cole contract by the Yankees Yamamoto gets a $50 million signing bonus. He's got an opt-out after six years and an opt-out after nine years. There's some backloaded salary. The Dodgers are trying to compete now and win as many championships as they can early on. And I think that now that Yamamoto has been signed, we were talking about this a little bit last week and the week before, you, you start to see what we, what we always see or what we usually see is that players kind of in that descending order, these are the dominoes that fall, right? You had Otani. And then Yamamoto kind of sits there and say, and, and if, he, if it weren't him as the top free agent pitcher, it would have been whomever that is, sitting around and going, okay, we've got Otani in L.A. Now what does this landscape look like? Are the Dodgers still players at my deal, you know, at my money where I want to be here? Oh, they are. Okay, well, then I've got one more suitor, which makes the, the value go up a little bit. I, I mean, early on, the projections for Yoshinobu Yamamoto were, were more close to $100, $150 million in total, and he's – you know, almost tripled that number. Uh, again, those were just projections. So I would think now that Yamamoto is is off the table and a member of the Dodgers. Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, and another Japanese pitcher, Shota Imanaga, are kind of the best, best arms left in free agency, which leaves, like we've talked about, a trio of Dylan Cease and Shane Bieber and Corbin Burns theoretically out there on the trade market, right? Whether Cleveland does deal Bieber, whether Milwaukee does deal Burns, or whether the White Sox deal Cease is still up in the air. And the White Sox have a luxury that the other two teams in this equation, the Guardians and the Brewers, don't have. And that's Bieber being a free agent after this year and Burns being a free agent after this year as well. Dylan Cease has two years of control left on his uh, well, on, on his time clock. And that means that the White Sox are 
able, whether they want to or not, is a different conversation, but able to wait on a Dylan Cease trade if they want to. Back to some of the larger forces, though, and and I think when you talk about or when we talk about you know these these big time super teams, right? Whether it be the Mets, who uh, I was just reading a Bob Nightingale story in USA Today uh, about the luxury tax that the Mets had to pay for last year's um, dollar. I just closed the window, but the Mets had to pay something like a hundred million dollars just in the luxury tax on their team last year. Mets were involved in the Yoshinobu Yamamoto talks. So were the Yankees, and I, and I think too when. You're looking at potential destina- destinations, rather, for Dylan Cease. It remains entirely possible that, you know, whether it's the Mets or whether it's the Dodgers, there's a note on the Dodgers here that I'll share with you in just a moment as it regards White Sox and Dylan Cease uh, and a potential trade. Um, it's entirely possible that because Dylan Cease is owed what he's owed here over the next two years, probably something like $24, $25, million, $26 million spread out over the next two through arbitration, that even if you're a team that spent somewhere close to a billion dollars over the last, well, committed something close to a billion dollars over the last few weeks here like the Dodgers have, um, that you could fit a number like Dylan Cease and a pitcher like Dylan Cease, to be sure, onto that roster. Now, we've had the conversation already here on White Sox Weekly whether or not moving Dylan Cease is the the right thing to do for the White Sox, right? We've kind of made our list of pros and cons, uh, kind of decided that while at least I had here on the show, and I think, I think most White Sox fans are kind of there with it, that while you'd love to see Dylan win as many games as you could in a White Sox uniform here over the next two seasons, that there are certainly good arguments to be made about potentially trading him if the return is what the White Sox need it to be. If if that, you know, if Chris Getz and, and the rest kind of determine, yes, this is, you know, an offer we can't refuse, then you make that move. To that end, uh, Bob Nightingale, who I mentioned earlier in USA Today, reported that the White Sox were interested in right-hander Ryan Pepio as part of a return package when discussing Dylan Cease with the Dodgers earlier this winter. You remember that you know, the rumors between the White Sox and the Dodgers popped up, I think it was like two weeks before the, uh, the general manager's meetings, the ones where the norovirus kind of ran around and everything, and it got cut short. Uh, no deal ended up happening, of course. Um, it was uh, the Rays that ended up getting Pepio and Johnny DeLuca, an outfielder, in the Tyler Glasnow, Manuel Margot deal. Uh, Glasnow extended by the Dodgers, who now have a, a rotation uh, that's, that's pretty formidable, even without Otani pitching in 2024. Um, but it's entirely possible, um, Nightingale writes, that you know, talks could be ongoing um, between the White Sox and and the Dodgers, though with Pepio, kind of a, a major league-ready kind of guy, pitched a little bit last year. You know, he's he's um, he's very projectable, is Pepio, that's for sure. Uh, that's a guy that's going to be in and part of a, a controllable rotation for the Tampa Bay Rays for the next, you know, six seasons or so, or before they deal him in arbitration. Um, but it would have been a guy that they could pencil into the rotation, no doubt about it. I, I think, too, what this kind of tells us about where perhaps where the White Sox are looking if they intend on dealing Dylan Cease is kind of toward that starting pitching market. You know, whether it's Nightingale in the USA Today piece kind of detailing that they were interested in Pepio as part of a trade, you would imagine that, you know, given his um, given his status, Pepio is probably the headliner in that. There's probably not a bigger bat 
that the White Sox would get over Pepio in a deal for Cease. At least that's my guess at it. Although Cease with two years control is probably worth more in prospects than Tyler Glass now. Complicating that factor, though, is the you know Glass now getting the extension with the Dodgers and them knowing that that's going to be something where they can get him in the rotation for the next. I think it was a five-year deal for Glass now. It, it looks like the and Bruce Levine talked about this too. Well-known, well well-loved baseball reporter here in town um, that the White Sox are looking for pitching in return in a Dylan Cease trade, and that's you know it, it's understandable considering that you're going to probably find more teams willing to deal um, from the pitching stable than they are position players, just given the controllable nature of those young hitters. But, you know, I, I'd love to see the White Sox recoup, um, you know, kind of a cornerstone bat in that trade over some pitching if that is the direction that they go. You know, I, I get that the White Sox are well involved or, or deep into the kind of remaking of the starting rotation. You know, Lance Lynn's not here anymore. Lucas Giolito's not here anymore. Dylan Cease, you know, obviously that's the guy we're talking about, is potentially being on the block, and we have been for weeks now. Um, you know, this rotation is just very different than it was or will be very different than it was last year. You know, forget 2021 when the White Sox were in the playoffs last. So I understand that finding that quality pitching that controllable quality pitching is is probably top of mind especially when you filter all of the offseason through the idea that gets wants this team to be more athletic and more you know active on the run prevention side right whether that be defense or whether that be pounding the strike zone those are the two areas that he kind of identified as places he wants the white Sox to get better immediately not so much the offensive side of things, right? I mean, he did talk about base running quite a bit, which is offensive. Um, but, you know, he, he wasn't talking about, well, we need to hit for a higher average, or we need another 40 points of on-base percentage from these three players, or, you know, we need another 125 home runs as a team, or, or whatever it is, right? It was more focused on defense and pitching. And I would imagine that if Cease goes, that you're going to get, you know, um, if, if a pitcher like Pepio were to be the, the headliner in the return, that you're going to get a guy or two here, whether that's going to be in a, a premium position or, or a little bit further down the defensive spectrum. You'll get a guy. Um, but I'd be really interested to see the White Sox make a deal if they do uh, for something that's more cornerstoned around a position player than maybe pitching. That's that's just my perspective on it. That's just kind of where I'm sitting right here on December 23rd. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get back into the idea of spending for the World Series, of, of teams kind of pushing in here and, and refute a few things. I, I read something really interesting um, about last season's playoffs. And we'll talk about the rules changes coming for 2024 as well. More tweaks than changes, but things we got to get our heads around now. I'm Connor McKnight. You're listening to White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's home for sports. On app. The ESPN Chicago app. In HD. FM 100.3 HD2. And of course on AM. ESPN 1000. This is White Sox Weekly. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly here on ESPN 1000. I'm Connor McKnight. Song two by Blur. I, you're probably Jack McGrath's our producer today. I don't know, Jack. You're don't tell me how old you are because it's going to make me feel terrible. And there's no reason to do that here on Christmas. But were you 
You're too young to know Blur and Song 2, aren't you? Yeah, a little bit. I think this was one on one of the old uh, Madden games, though, so that's how I know this one. It, it was on a Madden game. Uh, here's a fun fact for you. It actually predated. It wasn't its first video game debut. It was on the FIFA game for Nintendo 64 as the opening credits song. That's where ah. I first, that's where we all kind of first found it. John Wire and I rented that game on Nintendo 64, and like, the, the credits open, the music hits, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is a cool band. Let's we, You couldn't download music back in the day, but you went to the, you went to the store and you found that album and, uh, and you found out about Blur. It was, uh, it was a pretty cool moment. I think, you know, to be honest with you, whether it's FIFA for 64 or you know, MVP Baseball for mm-hmm. in 2004 or, or really some of the MLB The Show soundtracks, the one that has uh, a bunch of Tribe Called Quest on it, I think there's like two songs from that year. Like There are some pretty epic video game soundtracks from baseball video games past. I don't know if you've gotten into it yourself, but I, I promise you I could send you the playlist and you'd be like, all right, this is some good stuff. That and then the FIFA games have been notoriously good for having good soundtracks have because they, they, they kind of go on the alternative route. So it's sure. songs that a lot of people haven't heard at all, even songs you're not going to hear on the radio and then people discover them through through the FIFA games. See, that's see that's what the old MVP baseball games used to do. After the, uh, after the Red Sox broke the curse of the Bambini, you know, you had the Dropkick Murphys and Tessie singing the cover song, right? That's the whole, that's their their anthem out there in Boston. The All-American Rejects, I think, were featured in the cover song in 2005, I want to say, the year uh, the game came out, and then the White Sox would go ahead and win the World Series. You know, so you've got some good, you know, alt-rock cred for a lot of video game soundtracks there. Uh, no, there's no... There's no segue from, from that to this, so I'm not even going <laughs> to pretend. But Sox fans, 2024 ticket plans are available now. Be here for the biggest matchups and exciting new promotions throughout the season, including opening day on March 28th. Our ticket plans include great benefits such as a ticket exchange program, special events, savings on single games, and more. And if you ask nicely, I'll tell you about some of the best alt-rock bands that I like back from the 90s, and then you can put that on your playlist for ball games or something. For more information, visit whitesox.com. Slash 2024. Uh, we've got rules changes coming up in 2024. Our own Jesse Rogers, friend of the show, wrote this up for ESPN. So I wanted to run through some of the rules changes. I I mentioned it in the open. Of of all of the rules that, that we changed here over the last, I don't know, call it two, three years. Three, four years, right? Going back to even the year before the pandemic, right? I think 2019 was the first year where we had the three batter minimum memory serves the pandemic kind of messed with that memory for me but i i've i've liked just about every rule we've changed it took me a little time to come around on some of them i still don't love the runner on second base in extra innings it's just not my cup of tea however i i do get the point of having that runner out there. The idea is to use fewer pitchers and get games over a little bit faster. And, you know, games do tend to end faster, although the innings themselves, those extra innings go a little bit slower because you've got that guy on second base. But, you know, for the most part, I've, I've really liked the change. The average game time last year, I believe, was two hours and 44 minutes. And I think you'll find that there's kind of a common theme here in these rules changes, and that is Major League Baseball trying to get it closer and closer to a two-and-a-half-hour game. So here's how Jesse kind of breaks down the rules themselves. I'll I'll read from his spot on ESPN.com. With men on base, pitchers will have 18 seconds instead of 20 
to begin their motion home. However, no changes to the clock when the bases are empty. Still 15 seconds to begin the delivery in those situations. According to the league, pitchers began their deliveries an average of 7.3 seconds remaining on the 20-second timer. So, from 20 to 18 with men on base. I, as a as having watched the game from a broadcast perspective, right, very cognizant of the time it takes only because that time is a big factor in our broadcast, right? You want to make sure you're in and out at the right time. I take note of when the post-game show starts because I'm kicking it over to Waddle and Sylvie during a day game or what have you. You know, those kind of things are just, that's part of, of the job is kind of measuring those things. I, I did tend to notice that 20 was just, or feel like, I shouldn't say notice, I did tend to feel like 20 was plenty of time with runners on base for a pitcher to come home. So I, you know, I get this one. I don't think we'll notice that two seconds. I I know the players union has kind of said we have not had Tony Clark released a statement. He's the director of the players association um, and kind of said, we've not yet had time to determine the long-term effects of the pitch clock to begin with. And there have been some injuries and anecdotally, you've seen some writings about, um, you know, pitchers going for Tommy John surgeries to whether it's Dr. Neil Elatrache or, you know, whoever it is that these elbows are looking worse and worse, or, or at least different, I guess, than they used to when they get under the knife, whether that's because of a pitch clock or the, the, the fatigue associated with it, the lack of bounce back that that time gives you, we don't know yet. And I, I suppose that's Clark's overreaching point in the statement that the Players Association put out there. Like, we just, we just started this. Like, why are we changing it all of a sudden? We just started it. Let's figure this out. However... Progress marches on. We're down from 20 to 18 with runners on base. Rogers also writes, barring an injury, a pitcher who begins to warm up at the start of an inning will be required to face at least one batter. Previously, they could be replaced during or after warm-ups. The league said there were 24 instances last season where the pitcher that warmed up between innings was replaced before throwing a pitch, adding approximately three minutes of dead time. I remember it happening once in a White Sox game this last season, the opponent, I believe it was the Rays. It was. It happened to be a game I was filling in on um, for Len Casper, who was over on the TV side. And I. it, it was a little bit confusing. You know, it, it used to be kind of old hat, right? A guy could warm up. It might not be him coming out. You might spend some time. You know, managers have their ways of kind of dodging things. But you get into a rhythm where you feel that, you know, okay, he's warming up. He's coming in the next inning. It almost feels like, like rote. Uh, the league says 24 times last season that wasn't the case, and they're going to change that. I don't think anyone's going to notice that, except for like in a postseason situation, right, where you've got your 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 broadcasters, Joe Davis and John Smoltz, doing the World Series, and they'll see a guy in the bullpen, and instead of wondering whether oh he's going to come out and face the left-hander or whether or not there's another move to be made during the break, so stay tuned, you know, something like that they'll be able to say, nope, it'll be uh, Josh Hader coming out of the bullpen uh, to, to start the ninth inning here. They'll know it right away as opposed to kind of having to to wait and hedge just a little minor detail. I don't think you'll notice it much. Mound visits will be reduced from five to four per game. 
Uh, Apparently the league did some polling here, and Rodgers had the results of it. They said they rank among fans' least favorite events in baseball. Teams averaged just 2.3 mound visits per game last year. 98% of games last year would have not exceeded a limit of four visits. And this is something that's been, I I don't want to speak for Len Casper here, but it is something that he's talked about quite frequently. Um, The mound visits, boy, when we enacted the, the... the max of six, right? Everybody, oh, are we going to have enough? Are we going to have enough? And nobody got to six. You would rarely see a game get to the point where this team is out of mound visits and it becomes something tactical about it. The data here is that nobody was using five anyway, and teams will still be awarded an extra mound visit for the ninth inning if they've used all four after eight. Um, And I believe in extras, you'd get a mound visit there as well. The that that just makes sense. I mean, there's no reason what you want to avoid here, at least in my estimation, is while these rules changes are big, right? And I'm talking about the initial ones in 2023 and these kind of being tweaks. You don't want games decided by these new rules. So allowing for that mound visit in the ninth, let's say you're in a three-two count with bases loaded and the timers running down. You'd used your four mound visits in the rest of the game. You need a mound visit to stop that timer, the timer being a change. You want your catcher to be able to notice that pitch clock running down and be able to you know, wave things off and take the mound visit and not allow that automatic ball to be the game winner, right? We didn't see many of that effect ends of games. We did see it a couple times, but, but not many. Um, and when it first happened in spring training, gosh, we all – you know, we threw our arms up and we said, oh, my goodness, I wonder if this is going to be a horrible thing throughout the year. I wonder if this is going to be a problem, especially when it comes to the playoffs. And by and large, it really didn't affect end of game stuff on the pitch timer. There's one more here. The pitch timer is now going to reset after a dead ball. As soon as the pitcher is given a new baseball and play is set to resume. No longer do you have to be on the mound for the clock to reset. So that's a long way of saying sometimes on a foul ball, a pitcher would get the new baseball from his catcher or from the umpire while he was off the pitching mound and then kind of stalk around the mound a little while, yell and scream and blow his nose and whatnot, uh, and then get back on the pitching mound and the timer would start. It was kind of a way for pitchers to draw out the clock a little bit. Max Scherzer was notorious for doing this in this first year of the pitch timer. And I, you know, the league's looking to cut out dead time. I don't think this itself was something that was really dragging down games. And I'll be interested to see. There's got to be a tail on this room, too, because you got to have the, the rest of your players ready for play as well. So let's say it's a long foul ball out to left field and Andrew Benintendi's running after the thing because it's close. It bounces foul, goes into the seats. Benny made a long run on it, was going 100% because it was something he thought he might catch. And then Ben Attendee himself just kind of takes a lot of time getting back into position. You know, maybe he's got a shoe to tie or a leg to kind of, you know, whatever. Maybe it was cramping. You could see players kind of begin to be the the delay in getting back to play as opposed to the pitchers kind of walking around a mound or whatnot. I'll be interested to see just how much jurisdiction umpires have on, on that particular rule um, and, and the, you know, the tail on it uh, during pitching changes if the clock's under two minutes as the reliever exits the bullpen and onto the warning track, it will be reset back to two rather than two fifteen as it did last year, mostly procedural uh, and the league apparently withdrew a proposal 
to reset the pitch clock as soon as a batter calls timeout. Umpires will continue to use the judgment as to when the clock starts again. That's great. I would have, oh, man. I thought umpires did a great job last season of using their judgment to resetting the pitch clock, whether it be giving me the time needed for the pitcher to reset, no matter you know what was going on, or for the batter. I rarely saw an umpire be kind of you know draconian about the rule, really you know kind of rigid about this thing. And instead, most of the guys were were able to determine why that hitter called timeout or why that pitcher needed to step off or why that baseball, you know, fell over toward first base as opposed, you know, I, I thought they did a really good job of that. And because this timer is, you know, has so much consequence to it, the umpires really do have a bit more on their plate here and we're relying on them to keep this game moving in that way. And I, again, I, I just thought they did a really good job last year. I, I can't think of an instance where um, I'm sure there were some, but I, I can't think of an instance where an umpire really, you know, didn't see uh, the forest for the trees, you know, wasn't able to kind of understand, oh, you know, he's, this guy's got something in his eye. He needs a little bit more time to get back into the batter's box. This is a safety issue, not just a timeout, right? I, I get that, and I, I appreciated that, that was changed. Those are the rules changes. Um, they were met with some consternation from Players Association head Tony Clark. We we made I talked a little bit about that earlier on when we were talking about the pitch clock. There, I, I guess I can read you the the actual language. It's um, as they made it clear. Here's what Clark said: as they made clear in the competition committee, players strongly feel that following last season's profound changes to the fundamental rules of the game, immediate additional changes are unnecessary and offer no meaningful benefits to fans, players, or the competition on the field. The season should be used to gather additional data and fully examine the health, safety, and injury impacts of reduced recovery time. That is where our focus will be. So, you know, really kind of a, we didn't like this at all, thanks so much, move on kind of thing, as opposed to anything else. So um, I was interested to see that response, but also kind of expected it, right? I mean, this is the kind of, that's the fencing that happens between the, um, between the ownership, between MLB and the Players Association as it goes. We'll take some calls when we come back. Uh, Cole in Rosemont, you'll be first up when we get back. 312-332-3776. I'm Connor McKnight. you got White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000. We are talking White Sox. This is White Sox Weekly. If you missed the show, we put the podcast up on the ESPN Chicago app. So listen on your time. White, White Sox, Sox Weekly. Weekly. ESPN Chicago. Chicago's home for sports. Stay out of the elements in 2024. Located on the 200 level behind home plate, the Guaranteed Rate Club offers all-inclusive food and beverage in-seat service, and complimentary parking. Plans start at 20 games. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash GRC or call or text 312-674-1000. This is White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight. Your phone number for the show is 312-332-3776. Uh, anything White Sox, anything baseball on your mind, call in. Let's talk about it. We've uh, we talked a little bit about Dylan Cease and Yoshinobu Yamamoto and the Dodgers and the rules changes that are coming for 2024, and uh, that's what Scott Cole from Rosemont calling into the show today. Cole, what's on your mind, man? Man, last year, all these rule changes, we were going completely the wrong way. I hate everything about it. I hate it. Really? 
I would have I I like the idea of bigger bases if they just made first base bigger because that that totally changes the running game. It like I, I think that brings a new element to baseball. Mm-hmm. I like that idea, but. I mean, now it, it, it's too easy to get to second now. Like, like the, you had so many guys stealing. I mean, it was exciting. It made it more fun to watch. But I, I feel like it kind of ruins, like, the fundamental, like, energy of baseball. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get, get, I'll get all the other stuff in before I start frothing at the mouth over the pitching clocks. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, Cole, that you don't like the pitch clock. I get, I that, there's a, I, totally, I get that there's a purity to the game. And, and this like idea sacrilege. that baseball's never had a clock, but at the same time, you're getting more action, more bang for your buck, really. That surprises me. What about the pitch clock doesn't get you? It's, it's, just, it's just totally wrong. Like it's, baseball is not supposed to be a time sport. If it takes all day, it takes all day. Like, I'm, like we're, we're, we're there to like, like enjoy the game, right? Mm. It's, it, it's like... It, it, it's not like football or basketball where you know, like clocks running down or hockey. Like, like that, that's just part of the game. That's the element of the game. The element of baseball is that, like, like you're the pitcher. You have the ball. You have control over the game. That's the point. I hear you, Cole. I, I appreciate like, the phone call, my man. I. It's interesting. Cole is one of the, and, and this isn't a shot at Cole by any means. You like your baseball the way you like your baseball. Uh, I, far be it from me to tell you how you're supposed to enjoy the game. But I can tell you this. Um, I was reading a piece. I wish I could remember the newspaper it was in. I want to say it was the St. Louis Press-Gazette. It might have been the Times. I can't remember. Um, and it was, it was a piece from a little while back that was uh, decrying the, the, the coming downfall of baseball because it was just taking too long. There was not enough action in the game that the game was going to disappear from our entertainment lists, right? It was going to completely go away because the game was taking too long, the pitchers were wasting too much time, the players were spending time adjusting themselves, as you always see written. And the piece was written in 1911. I mean, that's... I, listen... That's the fact. We have been, as a baseball fandom, talking about how long the game takes for well over 100 years and wondering whether, because the game takes too long, whether it could even survive. So from that perspective, Cole's got a point, right? Like, if we've been complaining all this time about how long the game takes and we're all still watching it, are, do we really have a problem with the game? Now, the entertainment landscape has changed. You can get anything downloaded and streamed. And, and shoot, the future of, of baseball is being, um, I think, slowly changed here in terms of how you get your game, how you watch your game. I think we're going to see a lot of changes there in the next couple of seasons. Um, but, 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 we've been having this talk for a very long time. Uh, and I find it. I actually kind of find it cool, a cool thing about baseball that we continue to have people on both sides of the argument here. 312-332-3776, that's the phone. We come back, we'll talk a little bit about some of the big rumors around some potential free agents and trade targets, and we'll also talk about these Dakota projections for some big names on the White Sox here in 2024. What can you expect from a guy like Eric Fetty and Luis Robert Jr.? We'll let you know what at least one place thinks when we come back on ESPN 1000.
This is Chicago's Home for Sports. On app. The ESPN Chicago app. In HD. FM 100.3 HD2. And of course on AM. ESPN 1000. This is White Sox Weekly. You can give the gift of White Sox baseball with a holiday flex pack starting just $49. Get six ticket vouchers redeemable for more than 60 games throughout the 2024 season. Plus, get early access to opening day tickets. That's March 28th against the Detroit Tigers. Learn more at WhiteSox.com slash holiday packs. Just a few more minutes left with you here on White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight. We got a couple of phone calls to get to, so let's do that, shall we? 312-332-3776. That's the number. On the south side, it's Kelly calling into White Sox Weekly. What's up, Kelly? Yeah, I just want to say I agree with the last call of Cole. I am a big, big baseball fan. Like baseball is one of the most beautiful sports in the world. It's nothing like watching a game and it's like the eighth inning and that reliever comes in and he got the sweat on his forehead, about to throw a 3-2 pitch, and then he just pauses and calls time, and then he got to recalibrate. It's just a beautiful game of strategy, and I just feel like if you don't like baseball, cutting off 30 minutes to make it go from two and a half to two hours is not going to make you like the sport. It's a beautiful game, and I don't think – I just really hate that we try to change the personality of it to fit some people's mold who don't appreciate the game for what it is. And I feel like the one thing they probably could change is that maybe it's Lacking, like, theater, like when you watch a football on a Sunday night football game all in the theater around, like, the whole hour and everything like that before. But I just wanted to say that I love classic baseball. And if you do not like the sport, cutting off 30 minutes is not going to like It's not going to make you like it. So thank you for taking my call for sure. Yeah, Kelly, I appreciate it, man. Interesting. This is really interesting. I, I literally started the show by saying, for the most part, these these rules changes – you know, going back to last year, the pitch clock and everything were widely, you know, kind of loved by, by fans and broadcasters and a lot of players, not all players, but some players alike. And, and now we've got a couple of people saying that they'd like to go back to where it was. I'll just say this um, to, to Kelly's point here, right? Like, if, you, if you're looking for that, I, you know, far be it from me, that's why there's chocolate and that's why there's vanilla, right? There's a flavor for everybody, as a, as a famous guy on these on, on airwaves used to say. I, I, I think, though that we're not going to get a whole lot shorter than two and a half hours, right? I mean, we're still doing that. And if you're into the pageantry and the, the, the length of football, right, it's a, I mean, those broadcasts are going close to four hours now. And what the benefit football has, whether it's college or pro, the benefit it has is that it's once a week, right? You know that you can set your schedule to it, you know, the family over, the potluck and everything like that, or, or the friends and the buddies and, and open pop open the fridge in the garage and you've got four hours uh, to watch that game, those two teams, that one game, or you know, red zone if you're into it. Baseball's there for you every night throughout the summer. It is the soundtrack. And while you know we used to do these three and a half, four hour games or so, that can be taxing on a lot of guys. I remember talking to a couple of White Sox players last year uh, about this, the change in the pitch clock. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll we'll mention this in spring training, as we always do, or as I always do. Putting cleats on and wearing them for a long time after not wearing them all summer or all uh, all winter is hard on your legs. And I listen, they're pro athletes. They're paid to do it. I get it. There's a lot of ways around it. But you still have to work to get yourself back into shape. So just the mere fact of standing around and waiting around and being in a ball game that long means that I think 
there were more injuries cropping up over the last couple of years. And what's something that we've heard a lot from baseball fans? Oh, well, these are pro athletes. Why can't they stay on the field? All that kind of you look back in the day and you say, well, we had guys that played all 162 games back in the day. Why can't we have, well, those guys were out there for like two hours in afternoon and then they'd play the next game. I, I just, I think there's some correlation there. Uh, in downtown Chicago, it's Jim. Jim, you're on uh, ESPN 1000. What's up, man? Uh, Merry Christmas, Connor, and I hope it's a happy new year for the Sacks. Real quick, where do you think Tim Anderson is going to end up? And his replacement, I understand, is from Double A Ball and McCullum, McCullum or something. I don't know exactly. I just heard a rumor about this replacement is short for the sacks. Okay, yeah, sure, Jim. Yeah, Paul DeYoung was uh, signed by the White Sox a couple of weeks back. He's going to be your starting shortstop. He's uh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's a... all right. That's all right. He's been with the uh, it's been with the Cardinals for a good long time. Uh, a couple other teams last year. Colson Montgomery is the White Sox top prospect playing shortstop at Double A. Probably ticketed for AAA to start the year, but there's a lot of expectation that Montgomery, who's a top 20 prospect in baseball, has got some helium around him and, and could make the bigs at some point next year. Um, he's a big dude, six foot four, got a lot of work to prove defensively at short, but the White Sox are really optimistic that he can. As for what's next for Tim Anderson, I, I unfortunately for Tim, and I'm hoping for the best for him, I really am, uh, love covering the guy, I like talking baseball with him. I'm, I'm hoping he hits on to a team that's got a shot to win a little bit, whether it's at short or second base for Tim Anderson. I think he's still got some value to add to a ball club. That's going to do it for us. You can hear the music at 6 o'clock. We've got Northwestern and Utah, the SRS Distribution Las Vegas Bowl. It's a barn burner, the 8-4 and four Utes, and your 7-5 and five Northwestern Wildcats will be right here on ESPN 1000. Big thanks to Jack McGrath. I'm Connor McKnight. We'll catch you next week for more White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000.